part of our work as helpers is to go out and serve others, but we have to learn how to serve from a place of abundance and from recognizing that we are loved as we are and to not be hustling for that worth um, in the ways that we're serving others. Um, I mean, I write in the book about, you know, Keating's, um, you know, those, those programs for happiness, including power and control and affection and esteem um, and safety and security. And we will, we can hustle in a lot of ways to help others to achieve those or to earn those, but we have to get to a place to recognize that again, that we are beloved as we are. Um, and that requires us shifting not only towards ourselves and really continuing to stay connected with that that compassion towards ourselves, but learning how to shift and see that, oh my gosh, if this is in me that I did nothing to earn, I that this was prepackaged within me when I was born, that means that this is in everybody around me. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. On the show today, we are going to be talking all about the soul of the helper. This is Dr. Holly Oxhandler's first and much anticipated book, and she walks helpers through seven steps to tending to your soul. When a helper is living refreshed, seeing themselves as a beloved child of God, it allows them to see and support others at a much greater capacity. When I read this book, I felt validated, but I was also challenged and even supported because Holly not only shares the research behind these steps, but she also shares her own journey and how she implemented these practical steps in her real life. There is no denying that burnout and compassion fatigue is a real thing, regardless of whether you know or use those terms, but just about every helper I know has felt it. It's that relentless exhaustion, the loss of hope and motivation, and the overall feeling that something is wrong, but life is just moving so fast, there's just no time to stop and figure out what it is. There's an endless number of demands on your time and attention. But why do we continue at this pace knowing it's not healthy, or it even seems our pace has increased? There can be many reasons, but one of the biggest one is that the mess that the message of our worth is linked to our productivity. Our value as human beings is quantified and measured by our achievements and level of or level of service. We are better people because of our education, the number of people in our church, the money we make, or how much we have sacrificed to help others. When there is something to show, count, or recognize, it makes us feel worthy or valuable. But this isn't how God sees us. We are valuable. We are worthy of love because he said so. If I do nothing of external value, if I don't accomplish anything on my list, if I'm not a leader, a helper, a missionary, a pastor, a business owner, if I am simply me with nothing to show for it, then I am valuable, worthy of love and compassion. That is really hard to wrap my head around. I often measure the success of my day and ultimately if I did a good enough job in my ability to get my to-do list done. 
But every day, God says, I did a good enough job. Every day, he says, I am valuable. I am worthy of love and compassion. Holly writes about this, seeing the divine spark, this innate value inside yourself in her book, The Soul of the Helper. As a researcher, she is passionate about seeing the connection between faith and mental health and how helpers integrate or draw on their faith in the support work that they offer. Her research has led to discovering that helpers, clinical or non, who have faith as a core element in their life are more comfortable in integrating faith into their holistic care. This understanding has led her to developing namaste theory. When you see the divine in yourself, then you are able to more clearly see the divine in others. Her book, The Soul of the Helper, isn't a research paper, despite being a researcher, but it reads as an audio ethnography. Holly brings the reader through trials, challenges, and relatable stories of her life as she both discovers the value of namaste theory, but then comes face to face with the realization that like myself and many of you, she is moving at a pace or was moving at a pace that is not sustainable. Holly is vulnerable in sharing the discomfort of learning how to see the divine in herself, knowing the outcome is being a supporter that is better able to see the divine in others. Holly grew up in upstate New York with Lake Ontario literally in her backyard. (laughs) As a young child, her parents divorced and she faced a number of challenges. Holly's mom, ahead of her time, saw the value of counseling and introduced Holly to a counselor and she began to see him regularly. This exposure to counseling as a child changed Holly's life. Not only did it provide the safe space for her to wrestle through the challenges of trauma, but also provided her with an example of how powerful it can be when a counselor is able to integrate faith into their support work. She had introduced me to this one therapist whose name is Peter, and I write about him in the book, mm-hmm. um, who is just, oh man, he just had this calming, grounding presence that he brought to the room. And whenever we would meet, um, he really just had this ability to help me really be fully present that in a way that I didn't have to pretend I was okay for everybody around me. Um, I could bring all of who I was in the sense that I could talk about my faith as it related to the circumstances that I was navigating at home. Um, And he just, he really held that space with such tenderness and groundedness. And I think it's because of him and the way that he held that space that Um, that really did make me think, oh my gosh, I could do this for a job. Like I could do this for other people um, because, you know, I didn't have that exposure to other folks who were therapists or mental health care providers or social workers prior to that. Um, And, and yeah, he, he really was the one who set me on that trajectory of thinking about wanting to be a therapist when I grew Mm. up. So, Mm. yeah, that's amazing. That's so cool. So you connected with him as a middle schooler. Yeah. So throughout high school, you had this inkling, you had the passion to continue learning and this natural curiosity to you. Um, So tell me about you went to school. Did you go to school in Baylor? I know that's where you are now, but I wasn't sure. No, 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 no. I love that. So yeah, I'm like one of the few, I mean, there are a lot of Baylor faculty who they study here and they come back. I feel like I'm one of the few 
Baylor faculty who don't have that, that Baylor background, but that's okay. I got here when I could. So, <laughs> so there's that. Um, no, when I, so I, I started school in, um, in upstate New York at St. Bonaventure university, which is, um, you know, Catholic university in New York. And I spent one semester there and it, and I, and I write in the book about layers and ways in which it, it really did transform me. Some of the, um, some of the friars who were there would offer these like Sunday night student, you know, um, like it wasn't like a church service, but it was, and it wasn't like a small group. It was something, it was more contemplative and, um, yeah, so, so they created that space, but there's so much from that time that really kind of, I think, amplified this trajectory for me in terms of understanding this intersection of faith and mental health. Um, but I spent one semester up there. Uh, my mom ended up moving to Houston and transparently it was way too far away to be in New York and have her in Texas. So I moved down to Texas and, um, started studying at university of Houston for undergrad and finished my degree in psychology. And during that time I was generously exposed to, uh, lots of research opportunities. So I had these wonderful faculty who just invited me to help serve on their projects and volunteer and like enter oh. data and, and your listeners might be rolling their eyes. Like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> But I was so, you're like, I'm not judging. <laughs> well, no, I'm not going to lie. When I was going through my degree, there was like, okay, are you going to do like your practice? Or are you going to go into research, like policy research? And I was like, nope, on the policy research. No, thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and I did not think that I would be going into research at all either. I really had this dream of like having a private practice with like, a you know, comfortable couches and like, you know, pretty <laughs> candles and things like that. And like, no, that's, I mean, I still have the couch and the candles and smelly stuff around, but like, you know, not, uh, but I'm not, I'm doing research now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just, I really realized that that the creativity that is woven mm. into research and the opportunity to ask these big questions and to understand the statistics behind how we know what we know tied to research was just I mean, I loved it. I really fell in love with it. Mm. So, so I finished, um, my undergrad degree in psychology and then went on and did some work with older adults with anxiety and depression, um, in the Houston area. Um, and then ended up going on to get my master's in social work and went back to university of Houston for that. Um, and even though I thought that, again, that I would be going into private practice, I, I just kept getting those nudges to do research and that those questions that really had stuck with me that I cared deeply about around the connection between faith and mental health, they just, I mean, I couldn't shake them. So, mm -hmm. so I, I continued on um, to get my PhD and then, uh, you know, a few years later graduated and, and then started at Baylor. So that's amazing. What was that yeah. impactful experience that made you know this research is where, you know, where, where your home is or where your it aligns with your longing for curiosity and, and well, I shouldn't say longing, but the striving for yeah. curiosity or being fulfilled in, in getting those questions answered. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, 
So kind of where they originated, I mean, I feel like in some ways they've just been embedded Mm -hmm. throughout my whole journey. Um, I already alluded to the ways in which my faith was an important part of who I was growing up and, you know, growing up Catholic um, and knowing that I would engage in religious coping through a lot of the ways that I was, you know, navigating um, family situations, personal experiences and things like that. Um, so there was that faith side, but then around the mental health side, again, kind of the fact that I had Peter who is so open to talking about faith, but not in a way that imposed his beliefs onto me or Mm -hmm. told me I should feel a certain way or anything like that. He just held that grounded space for me to explore my faith as it related to my current situation or experiences so that I could be like, you know, where are you God in some of these Mm -hmm. um, situations or, you know, why are these things happening or why would God allow this to happen to me? Um, Mm -hmm. so I feel like it's just kind of been woven in throughout, but then, uh, as I got older, as I better understood psychology and was studying psychology, as I was also having this like burning desire to better understand world religions and like how they are connected to one another. Um, I mean, my mom ended up, the the man that she ended up marrying who later adopted me, he identifies as Buddhist. And so even with my Catholic background and his Buddhist background, we could have these conversations Mm. that um, were honoring of the other's belief system in a way that, you know, was was meaningful for the both Mm. of us. Mm. So I feel like those things really kind of led to that curiosity. And then I, I start the book off talking about that moment in the auditorium where I was listening to, um, my now mentor, but at the time, just this guy I really looked up to whose name is Ken Pargament. Um, and hearing him talk about the intersection of spirituality and mental health and the fact that so many people engage in their spirituality or their religion to cope, but, um, we don't see those same frequencies oftentimes among mental health care providers, or at least among, um, faculty who teach upcoming mental health care providers and that there's not a lot of training when it comes mm-hmm. to like, how do you equip mental health care providers to talk about faith? Mm-hmm. So there's something about like that moment being in the auditorium and hearing him talk about this data that just had me like, oof, floored. And like, I don't, I mean, like, it just felt like this is the work I was made to do. Yeah. Um, and I tried to shake it, but but I couldn't. So it's so true when you say that, because practicing as a clinical social worker in a community mental health agency, we are embracing, and it was in a secular role. It was not not a a faith-based organization. Um, However, faith is part of the holistic perspective when we connect with people for their story, for their healing, for their coping strategies and resources where they can draw strength from. Uh, Faith is widely recognized, but you are absolutely right. We are not trained on how to connect with people or how to talk about that or how to integrate that in in ways that we might do for relationships or um, social or emotional regulation or, you know, we have a lot of tools and strategies to integrate other areas or to Mm -hmm. use other areas as um, opportunities for strength and growth, but not so much the faith element, although it's considered a component. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. I mean, I remember being in my orientation, you know, during the orientation for my program, for my MSW program, hearing about, you know, person with an environment and, you know, biopsychosocial perspective, <laughs> where we think about one's body and their mind and their social makeup and mm-hmm. um, thinking about, you know, systems and structures and coping strategies and like all of these things. But it was, I mean, it was almost awkward because we were kind of looking around, like there's this core part of a lot of our lives that like, like, where does this fit in? Where does it fit in for our clients? And where does it fit in for us? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and thinking about the layers and nuance around, you know, not only just religious affiliation and the diversity within that. uh, But then when you start thinking about how folks view God differently from one another and how we cope through situations differently based on our faith and our background and experiences, as well as, you know, spiritual struggles that we might have too. I mean, there's just so many layers that, um, it just can't be ignored in this work that we do around mm-hmm. mental health specifically. Yeah. 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 And it's important that we have these conversations and I'm so grateful that you mm-hmm. are among the way, the path makers for us to be able to have ah, these conversations. Right. So it's, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. I will say I'm too, I'm really grateful for the other people who are doing this work too, because mm-hmm. I swear some of the most incredible human beings I've been in contact with are the ones who are doing this work at this intersection mm-hmm. across disciplines. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Many of the listeners are working within churches. And so they're not so much mm-hmm. clinicians, although some are, they're not so much mm-hmm. clinicians working, um, you know, with a broad um different with people who have broad views of of God or or religion or faith. Um, They are many of the people are who are listening are people who are working within a church and often connect with people uniformly. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how um, or, you know, is this something that is different from someone who works more in a secular system versus within a more of a a consistent um, faith belief? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I always err on the side that, you know, there are going to be some differences in different settings. Like you do need to know your setting in which you are working in and being mindful of, of that. Um, but what I would say, and it depends on the profession that they're in too. So, you know, so the things that mental health care providers are expected to do will be different than those who are perhaps a faith leader or some in some kind of pastoral position. Um, codes of ethics are different, things like that. Um, but what I would hope, first of all, is recognizing that um, that we name that there is an intersection between spirituality and mental health, and um, that 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 spirituality for the individual may look very different. Like even if someone says, yes, I identify as, you know, Catholic or Protestant, you know, and then you have another person who comes in that you meet with an hour later and they say the same thing. Those two individuals may both check the box that they're the same faith tradition, but they may have vastly different views and experiences and um, supports and struggles. And so we do need to really be paying attention to this for each individual, I would say. Um, Now, still, I think, you know, this intersection, though, it's, um, 
it's going to look, I mean, we need to be paying attention to it, not only within those that we're serving, but also within ourselves, I think. And that's really a big part of this book too, is the recognition that, um, you know, there is there, I mean, we are human beings and that human condition and that human experience is going to include for most of us, um, a spiritual orientation, belief system journey, um, that, that's going to evolve and change as we navigate life. And at the same time, we're, we're going to have mental health things to navigate too. Um, and, and I talk about in the book too, about how we see in the data that even though NAMI will say that one out of five of us are currently experiencing mental health struggles, um, we have seen in some of the longitudinal data, meaning like we've tracked folks over a long period of time, that actually it's more like over 80% of us at mm-hmm. some point in our lives are going to meet um, a a diagnosis for a mental health condition. Um, and so, you know, so none of us really are, I mean, very, very few of us, I would say, and I would even question that 17% who, you know, didn't meet criteria, like, you know, what's ahead, but, uh, but, but we're human. I mean, in the same ways, like, you know, we get strep throat and we have colds and, you know, we get the flu and whatever else, like, we're going to have times and seasons that we struggle with our mental health too. And it's just part of what it is to be human. And it's, yeah. Um, so I don't know if that answers <laughs> to your question, but yeah. Yeah. No, I just think it's so interesting how, even though at an indiv- a person within the same church, like you said, back to back meetings with people, they can identify as saying they are in alignment with, you know, whatever faith tradition or belief system or denomination mm-hmm. that you, you know, they are going to be different. And even you right. as right. a, a supporter, as a helper are going right. to have something different. And so there's yeah. so, and, and, and so there's so much uniqueness within people people's faith beliefs, but there's also so much uniqueness in in, in a person's um, experience of their mental health. And so it's exactly right. It's, it's, and that's where I think people find it um, overwhelming or confusing or awkward. And how do I connect with someone knowing that their faith belief or the background or experiences is so vastly different and their mental health experience and, and Mm. life is, is unique. And, uh, I, you talk about it in the book and and I want to introduce the book properly. We keep referencing to it, but I do, we will get there. We will get there. I promise. But I just think, you know, what is something that, um, that and the helper, the ministry yeah. helper or leader, or what have you, would, is there a way that they can, um, is there a tool resource or a mindset that they can recognize the uniqueness in them versus mm-hmm. the uniqueness in the other person? Yeah. I love it. And you're, you're pointing us straight to that. Um, yeah, I mean, this is where I really want to invite the helper to recognize these layers of intersectionality within themselves so that they can hold the space for it and um, within themselves so that they can then hold that space for other people in all of the various layers of diversity and um, experience and 
just different things that folks have had to navigate when it comes to their faith and mental health. What I am most hoping is that helpers recognize this intersection and ultimately this divine spark, this sacred within themselves so that they can hold that space and that to be able to hold the sacred for others. I mean, it goes back to like, you know, I was talking about Peter earlier. It really was in his groundedness and his ability to honor and hold space for what he believed in, that he was then able to really and truly hold the space that I needed to wrestle through my own intersection of faith and mental health with whatever was going on in my family situation. Um, but we have to do that work within ourselves before we can offer that, uh, space for others. Mm -hmm. And I think as helpers, Sometimes we lose sight of that because we're so oriented toward the other and helping and doing and going and serving and advocating and on and on and on. Um, and that is good work, but we have to start with this within ourselves so that we can be sensitive to all those layers um, for others. Mm. Yeah. We are going to go into the book now because I cannot hold it back anymore. <laughs> But first, before we do that, I actually got one thing. Can you please, um, many people don't understand. I am a social worker. I, you know, 15 years, I fully understand and value the term holding space. Can for other people who this is a new term for, can you describe what holding space means? Yeah, yeah, that's so good. I mean, I would think about... You know, if a friend is coming to you and, and wants to tell you something really big and important to them, what is the way in which you can allow them to explore and contemplate and think through and navigate and discuss that thing that they want to tell you about without you jumping in, pushing it out of the way, telling them to, or trying to quiet it or bypass it, or, you know, all the coping strategies when things are uncomfortable, like how do you just sit there grounded to be able to let them be the, what they need to be in that moment mm. or say, or explore? Mm, yeah, that's so good. I love that. Thank you. Because a lot of people are like, what the heck is holding space? I know my husband has often said, what are you saying? What words? Those words do not go together. I do not understand. Um, so I wanted to define that because we use that a lot in, in in our work. And and that really, like you said, it really means um, being intentional about connecting with someone so that they find that they feel safe, that they can go the whole spectrum of emotions experience without knowing there with knowing with that there's no judgment and that you'll be there to explore the next step as they process and, and work through it so I love that I love that okay so you are uh have recently um published a book it's your first book and I just I'm like oh yay I want to celebrate with you that's so exciting and reading this book it was phenomenal and the part that I loved it that spoke so much to me is called the soul of the helper and this is such an area that I'm passionate about because like you said when we are in the re in relationship with people are we connecting as supporters as helpers as caregivers that it our health and our well-being matters so heavily and we often forget about that we're looking to support we're looking to you know unfortunately sometimes try to fix or solve which um but we're trying to hold space with people not realizing that our own well-being and our own um health is, is a huge component of that. Can you describe a little bit of where the soul of the helper came from? 
Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, I just want to, I just really appreciate all of what you said, just kind of setting this up and talking about the book and um, yeah, I, so there, it really came out of, I mean, obviously I write about my life experience in this book around this intersection, um, but it primarily, I would say it was born out of the research that I had been doing, um, looking at this intersection of spirituality and mental health and trying to understand, you know, what is it that supports or allows, or, you know, what's happening in the mental health settings specifically. So I really, I started looking at what was happening in mental health settings between the therapist and the client. And what I found was that mental health care providers who are more deeply motivated to live out their faith and they are connected with their faith and, and uh, what that means for them deeply, they tend to be more open to um, and have more positive views toward and actually integrate the client's faith into treatment more frequently. Um, and so I had looked into, there's this um, Hindi term, namaste, which literally translates to mean, I bow to you, but we often understand it to mean the sacred within me recognizes the sacred within you, or the divine in me recognizes or sees the divine in you. Um, and this word really brought order to kind of what I was seeing. So I spent some time understanding more of the cultural roots of it to try to, to respect and understand and really get at the origins of the word. Um, but it brought order in recognizing that as mental health care providers were more deeply connected to the sacred within themselves, they tended to be more um, willing to hold space and to connect with the sacred within their client. Um, so that's, that was kind of the, the base, I think, origin that, that seed, um, the initial one for it, but really it's, um, I mean, it, it, it started with that and then really moved to a place of recognizing that this work is not just for mental health care providers. Um, as I had more conversations with other helpers, including faith leaders and, nurses and doctors and parents and, you know, the baristas and, you know, the like staff and hairdressers, just, you know, teachers, hairdressers. That's right. Like it is not just like, even though all of those disciplines there, they may not be talking about the intersection of faith and mental health consistently, right. In the work that they do, but they still have this intersection within themselves. And as they interact with other people and serve others, that intersection is going to be there too. So excuse me. Um, so I really understood like, oh, this is not just for mental health care providers. It is for helpers in general in the ways that they are serving and giving to others and recognizing we have got to wake up to the sacred within ourselves mm -hmm. as we go out and serve others. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that, that really was like, the beginning of it. And then as I write about in the book, I, I really write it more as like an autoethnography. So it's really my journey in wrestling with this data and this research as I lived into it and talked with others about it. So I love yeah. that because as I was reading it, I was able to resonate with your story and the data and the information you provide allowed me, gave me the tools and the resources to be able to apply it. So, you know, the, the books that are um, really great information, but it's, it's hard to 
get an understanding or tried to apply that. But with with you, the, the, the style that you wrote it in really brought the storyline along with that. And it added so much value. So I appreciate you being vulnerable and including your own personal struggle and story throughout it. Oh my gosh, Laura, I can't tell you how much, how, how much that means to me. Thank you. This, I will say that as an academic, it is very easy to hide behind uh, the data. (laughs) And this is definitely a, a wobbly new path for me to, you know, to be able to pull back the curtain a little bit from, instead of just pointing to the data that I've collected, but to actually personally wrestle with and think through and embody mm-hmm. what this research has done to me and re- and what it how it has transformed me i mean um that in and of itself has been quite a shift so mm-hmm. uh, just going from like the research articles to this but but i feel such a strong um Oh, I don't, I don't know what the word is. I, I just, it's really important to me that the data actually get out to the people that it was designed to serve, that I gathered it to serve. And so, you know, if I write and do all this research and it only ends up in academic journal articles, then, um, I mean, that's, that's not what I'm hoping for in the end. I need- mm-hmm. It's almost like you've done a disservice to the data by, by limiting its access, right? It's creating more barriers. That's exactly right. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I wanted to connect with you and and share this information with people is because I really um, push and try to get practical things like something that could impact someone's next conversation mm. or their next week. And and so that's why this was a part of it is that I'm like, oh, this can impact people on an individual, how they support themselves and also how they support others. And, and how you organize the book is through yeah. seven stages. And I love the analogy. Um, alliteration of them. So um, we're just going to go through them briefly to kind of tell the story or weave the story through those seven stages. Um, so let me hear what what are the stages? Yes. Yeah, so the stages are speed, slow, steady, still, see, shift, and serve. So the way that I've been trying to explain it is the recognition that um, this journey is that we have to wake up to the speed at which we've been operating at um, for Mm. far too long um, to be able to then slow down to be able to then identify ways to steady ourselves so that we can remain comfortable with that state of slowness um, so that we can get to a place of being still because it's not until we are still that we can then see the sacred within ourselves before we then shift out um, towards self-compassion and compassion for others as well. Um, And then serve from that place of abundance and recognizing um, that we are loved as we are, that we are the beloved um, and to serve from that place um, of worthiness rather than hustling for our worth in ways that we may have back at that early stage of speed. And I definitely want to say too early on that this is not a linear journey in the, in the sense that it is like clean and, you know, one step and two step and, you know, it is messy. Um, and we're going to bounce from different stages at different seasons in life, but, um, yeah, but, but we take it one day at a time. So, yeah. 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 Um, and so this is a journey that you bring people through so that they are able to serve out of an abundance 
and serve being fulfilled and not out of lack. And I think that is that is the intention is that the, and and the the hope for for everyone, but not often how everyone lives. In fact, it's not is most people aren't serving out of an abundance. They're from depleted and they're 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 weary. And so this is a really step by step like you're not jumping from a huge step to an to another but it's a step by step process that you walk people through um i can just share a little bit about my experience yes please um and then we can chat about each step but um the speed <laughs> speed oh my goodness recognizing the speed is that the chapter is it the very beginning that you you identify movement or is that in slow or steady yeah I think that was in slow so speed is just gaining awareness and then slow is like like being intentional and slowing your pace that's right yeah yeah so yeah so for people who are listening, okay, this literally, this statement rocked my world. And I don't even know if it's going to say it properly. But the so Isaac Newton's, um, what is it called? It's his theory of something. <laughs> I'm not science buff. It's, yeah, his laws of motion. Laws of motion. Yeah. Laws of motion. Yeah. So what is in motion stays in motion unless it, it meets resistance. Uh, that's my paraphrase. And um and actually, it's in the study chapter. Oh, study. I'm, I was wrong about oh, that. Man. Yes, it's in the study chapter. So study yeah. chapter, that's number, that's the third step. So speed is recognizing, slow is being intentional, slow, and steady is just like getting comfortable with it. And that's pretty much, and that is really hard for me. I have identified a number of times in newsletters telling people how uncomfortable it is for me to be steady and, and, and to have that slower pace stop. I just don't know what to do with myself because I've been at a speed that has not been um, sustainable. And so this really spoke to me on a personal level, recognizing that, and I've said this to people, and maybe those who are listening are the same, that I am going to, I can't stop unless I, unless I like leave my house. Like I go out for a walk or I plan a vacation or I'm at a friend's. If I am home, I have a hard time stopping because there's always something to do. What, you know, it was a mom hat or a friend hat or a, a, a working hat, like regardless of the hats, when I'm home, I'm reminded reminded of all of the things. And so when you said that what is in motion stays in motion unless there's some sort of resistance or something to prevent it, I was like, oh, that is so true. And I guess my question is, is like, how do we, how do, what, what practices or what can we put in place to stop it? Because <laughs> if it's not leaving, if it's, that, if it's at, if I'm at home, it's not stopping. So how can I, how can I slow that pace? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Why well, I'm so grateful that you like elevated this part of the book. Again, this is one of the, just a treat <laughs> through this process is hearing kind of what is landing with folks and, um, and such, but I would say, as I mentioned, so this is, this is in the study chapter. So, um, so the, the first chapter, again, focusing on speed, it's just recognizing that we are going at such a fast, unsustainable pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving to the next section of slowing down and really starting to initially get at like, why do we need to slow down? Why were we going as fast as we were in the first mm-hmm. place? Like, what was the reason? Are we fulfilling our own need to be needed? Yes. Oh my gosh, that was so challenging to hear. 
<laughs> yes. Oh, I know. Believe me, it was challenging to write too, my friend, um, and to wake up to. Um, and I would say too that this book, I mean, it took me three and a half years to write this book because it is, it is, it's just not an easy, quick process. It's a long, yeah. Um, but all that to say, when you get to that study chapter, it's, it's, we need our, we need scaffolding. We need studying structures around us to be able to help us stay in that slower pace. Because the reality is, is that we have operated as long as we have um, at such a high speed pace that, you know, it takes a lot to slow down. And sometimes even when we, you know, when we hit the wall, the like proverbial hit the wall, we, we burn out, there is still something humming deep within us that is like, keep going. Because those are the narratives that have just pushed us as hard and as fast as they have for as long as they have. So once we recognize that we need to slow down, we've really got to get to some studying structures to help our soul get comfortable with that slower pace. Um, and so, you know, learning how to receive help from others. I write about going to my doctor and like, I still have my, my little scribble contract that I write about in the book next to me, like on, you know, this little refrigerator. Um, but receiving support from others, learning how to get comfortable with um, saying no and setting boundaries and um, practicing Sabbath and learning to get curious about our bodies and what our bodies are telling us, um, knowing, I mean, how many of us for so long, you know, we have a headache. We're like, ah, that's not convenient. I don't want a headache right now, but, but sometimes that headache is trying to tell us something and learning how to get curious with that and, and, and showing kindness towards ourselves with the ways that our body is communicating to us, not through language in the ways that, you know, we speak to one another, but through headaches or backaches or pains or, um, fatigue, things like that. Um, so there are some like lots of practical things in that chapter that I had just mentioned, to help us um, find a steadier pace, again, like boundaries, learning how to lean into patience, getting curious about our use of social media and all the notifications around us that, you know, want to keep us going. And anyways, I could go on and on, but yeah. So good. It's so good. Yeah. I love that you mentioned social media. I literally just put on parental controls on myself like two weeks ago. I had them on and then I took them off and then I just put them back on. I was like, nope, this needs to happen. (laughs) How did you tell me? How did you set it up? Like, what is it? What are the... You just go into settings and I, I, I had to Google it to learn. So I'm not the greatest with technology, but I just said, you know, it's in the parental controls and what time you got to pick which apps shut down at what time or a, you limit how much you can be on different apps and things like that. So I put parental controls on. It's just a reminder. I can ignore them if I need them. Like if I'm in the middle of a conversation and, and you know, Messenger or WhatsApp or something closes, I can always ignore it. But um, it is a good external signal that was like, mm, you're at your limit, you know, be That's mindful so of good. this. So, oh, Laura, I'm yeah. so, so proud of you. Yeah. That's awesome. After uh, speed, slow and steady, there's still C and shift. I think still and C. Let's link those together. And something that you mentioned, <laughs> let's mention um, something that I really note, um, an analogy that you gave is when you look into water, you're only able to see a reflection if it's still and calm. 
And that impacted me so much because in my experience of compassion fatigue, I, I have this on another episode, uh, my, my, my journey and experience with it. It wasn't until I stopped and was in my, you know, I was getting healthy that I really was able to recognize how um, pervasive or how impactful my pace and my giving was. And I was just talking with uh, someone the other day who recently stepped down from a ministry position and there are six, eight weeks out and they're just recognizing now on how, not that the environment was toxic or or anything like that, but their pace was just too much that it was and how it was impacting them. Yep. 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 It's, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, I mean, we, I think we lose sight of how fragile we are as human beings and that (laughs) we are not machines. We cannot go at such a fast pace for so long or we will burn out. Um, But in those chapters that you mentioned around stillness and seeing in stillness, there are a lot of Uh, practices um, that help us to learn to be with stillness, because as you had even shared, that's, that's not easy. Yeah. And it's hard when we have a lot of outside messaging that's telling us that that's bad or lazy or that it's not good to slow down. Like those are hard messages to have to unlearn or to get curious about, or to critically think through and wonder, you know, what of this is helpful and what of it is not helpful. Um, but there are practices in here that I elevate around like solitude and centering prayer, um, that really helped us to be in that place of stillness, um, learning how to, um, practice non-judgmental self-observation mm-hmm. so that, oh, I know so that, you know, <laughs> the thoughts and the criticism and the things can come, but like, remembering like we are not defined by those things that they they can flow on by and we can let them go and just try to stay as best as we can in that present moment um but we need those we we need these practices to help us be still because as you mentioned we cannot see the sacred within ourselves or within other people if we don't practice stillness. And it's not only, it's not only that we can't see our reflection, but I use that analogy of like, you know, paddling out in a canoe when I was a kid and looking over the side of the lake or the side of the canoe into the lake. And if there were any little ripples, not only could I not see my reflection, but I couldn't clearly see what was beneath the surface either. And so it's really important that we do have that stillness so that we can see deep within ourselves, everything that's in there. And it's both the good and the sacred and that divine spark and that image of God that is within us. And it's also the pain and the suffering and the, um, the ways that our efforts to help may have actually been hurtful to other people and learning how to hold that space, going back to that phrase um, from earlier, but learning how to hold that space for ourselves Mm -hmm. is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that throughout my journey, there have definitely been times where I'm like, no, 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 I can see, like, I, I can see the sacred, like I can feel God in me and, and I can see the image of God in others, but like, it's like driving past a flower, you know, at like 80 (laughs) miles per hour, or even at like 10 miles per hour, like you might be able to see it briefly, 
but like you can't really fully see it until you're still with it. So, Mm, yeah, that's so good. And that's where you go into shift and serve from my memory anyway, is that how these practices can really impact your work with others in that and when you have these practices for yourself and you are coming from a place of of health and that you the the role that you can play in other people and seeing the sacred in them or seeing you know the image of god and seeing them as who they are as you know children of god and beloved that that becomes much more relevant and and valuable and um takes the support from a to a whole different level. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it's not that we stop at C. We don't stop there and just stay there. Like part of our work as helpers is to go out and serve others, but we have to learn how to serve from a place of abundance and from recognizing that we are loved as we are and to not be hustling for that worth um, in the ways that we're serving others. Um, I mean... I write in the book about, you know, Keating's, um, you know, those, those programs for happiness, including power and control and affection and esteem um, and safety and security. And we will, we can hustle in a lot of ways to help others to achieve those or to earn those, but we have to get to a place to recognize that again, that we are beloved as we are. Um, Mm -hmm. And that requires us shifting not only towards ourselves and really continuing to stay connected with that, that compassion towards ourselves, but learning how to shift and see that, oh my gosh, if this is in me that I did nothing to earn, I, mm-hmm. that this was prepackaged within me when I was born, that means that this isn't everybody around me. So it's not to say that as we recognize the sacred within others, that we suddenly are okay with the ways that others have hurt us over the years or that, you know, it just dismisses all of that. I want to be very clear that, you know, that there may be folks who have hurt us over the years and, um, and part of our work is learning how to hold space for both the pain that they caused us and how to protect ourselves and how to, um, contemplate that they have the image of God within them too. Mm. So, um, but again, it doesn't mean that, that you as somebody who has been hurt has to, I'm absolutely not saying that you just go forgive them and that everything is, is okay. Um, I just want to, to be really clear on that, but this shift, these two shifts, again, it's extending compassion towards ourselves and continuing to nurture and tend to, and remain connected with that divine spark within us, but then being open to the understanding that, if I had this prepackaged within me and did nothing to earn it, then that means that everybody else around me has as well. Mm. And so how do I then seek the sacred within those around me as well as mm. within myself? Um, and to get curious about how God is showing up in the world around me um, and around us. And so that's that's where that shift comes in. And from that place of shifting, then we move into serving because ultimately, you know, as helpers, we are here to serve and love and care for and advocate and help and heal and all of those things. Um, We are here to do those things for others. Um, But I want us to be 
I want to invite us to be doing that from that grounded space of recognizing that we are beloved and that we can then discern what is truly ours to do to serve Mm -hmm. others, Um, not to avoid the things that are hard to do, um, but to really discern what is what is mine to do as a helper so that we're not burning out and going back through that cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I, not to overstep and not to understep, but where is the where is that balance? Absolutely, that's amazing. Oh, Holly, this is a beautiful piece, um, and uh, of you know, writing and this book is so valuable as it walks um, helpers through this this journey of of reflection and self discovery, and I am so grateful so grateful that you have been vulnerable and put this out to the world so that we can all learn and grow and uh, deepen our ability to care for ourselves and care for others. Mm. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate yeah. it. And for all you're doing to, to help others and to help the helpers. And I, mean, I know you're, you're right with me <laughs> doing this work too. So I really am thankful for yeah. that. Yeah. And I'm curious, um, just thinking back, reading through the book and hearing so much of your story and then what you shared today, um, you know, of those mentors and those impactful moments growing up and knowing what you know today, what would you tell your past self if you could write yourself a letter or send yourself an email or a voicemail? I would tell my younger self um, to keep going, to stay hopeful, to um, keep seeking, keep looking, keep finding those threads and the ways in which God is showing up around you, um, to lean into the fact that you are human um, and that you know your mental health is messy and just as it is for everybody else um, and to just keep going one step at a time I would love to go back and tell her you are worthy and you are loved but I don't know that she would hear it if I were telling her um, I would love to tell her that but um, I mean just to, to tell her but but at this moment, I would, I would especially emphasize the other pieces that I had shared. Hey, thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care for both yourself and for others in your church? If you liked what you heard today or found it helpful, I would love if you could write a review. This will help others find the podcast more easily. And don't forget to follow. Thanks for connecting. Take care.